we're continuing in our series, Sometimes You Just Have To, and it's the idea that if we really believe something, or if we trust Christ in particular, trust in Him, uh, it's going to produce action in our lives. We're, we're, we're going to live in accordance with what we really believe and what we really trust or who we really trust. There's a verse that we've kind of been following through this series. It's our overarching verse. It's uh, James 2.17. It says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it does not, what is the word? Prove. If it does not prove itself with actions, is what? It's dead. Another translation says, so then faith that doesn't involve actions is what? It's phony. So it's clearly saying if a person says, I have come to trust in Christ my creator, and I am now his follower, but there's nothing in their life that substantiates that, uh, there's no action that shows that they are finding God's will in his word and obeying God's will from his word, there's no action, then, then their faith or whatever it is they're calling trusting Christ, it's, it's not real, it's phony, it's not, it's not substantiated by any action. There's another couple quotes that I've shared with you uh, from the beginning of this series each week. God always intended our relationship with him to be dynamic. That's the relational component and developmental. The dynamic is the result of our trust in God. We trust in God, in Christ, a person. That is a dynamic relationship. The development is the result of our, what is the word? Obedience to God. Listen to me, folks. You can stay in church. You can call yourself a Christian for decades. But until you and I actually take God's word and obey it and put it into practice, we will not grow at all. We, we, we will not be changed. It's as we take God's word and obey God's word that we start to develop. We start to grow. That's why you may know some people that have been in church world, call themselves a Christian for decades, 20, 30 years, and yet their lives never really change. And they certainly don't have much change inside as well as outside all right today we come to this notion of sometimes you just have to endure now you know right off the bat that's not a real pleasant idea let me give you a little definition of endurance um, endurance is the ability to continue with an unpleasant or difficult situation experience or activity over a long period of time and there's words in it we don't like unpleasant difficult and to continue with it over a long period of time or maybe sometimes an indefinite period of time so that that's kind of what endurance is but it, it kind of makes you wonder well wait a minute Randy wait a minute if if I've returned to Christ my creator if I've put my faith in him and I've become his loyal follower uh, then then why should I have to contemplate this sort of thing enduring you know going through circumstances that I find unpleasant or difficult for an indefinite period of time I mean if I'm on God's side isn't it reasonable to believe that he would be on my side I mean shouldn't I get some kind of preferential treatment if I've returned to him shouldn't he be loyal to me too I mean you know is it too much to ask that God just at least smooth my life out a bit more than the average Joe who wants nothing to do with him or his will is that an unreasonable way to think there's some verses that seem to substantiate this. In the New Testament book of Romans, listen to this verse, Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that all things work together for what? Good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Sounds like preferential treatment to me. Uh, another verse from Romans. It says this, if God is for us, who can be what? You know, God and you, God and me are a majority. That sounds like preferential treatment. How many agree? Can I just see your hands? It absolutely is. Listen, if you've 
in this life come to your senses just like I came to my senses to some degree at least at age 23. I'm still in process of coming to my full senses. Uh, and return to Christ my creator and become his follower. If you've done that, then absolutely you are going to get preferential treatment from God all of your life. But the question is this. Is a smooth life, the kind of life that I would choose, a predictable life like Kim talked about earlier, is it possible that that's not God's best gift? It might be the gift that I want. I mean, I want to know that tomorrow's going to be good and the day after that's going to be better and so on and so on and so on. That's what I want. And I know that God has the power to do that if, if he chose to do that. But, but what if what I'm calling good is not the best gift that God could give? I mean, if God's actually devoted to me with preferential treatment, which those verses we just glanced at indicate, he really is preferentially devoted to us, but he's devoted to our highest good. And what if our highest good requires endurance? I mean, what if the truth is this? What if the truth is that there's nothing at all worthwhile in life that we can acquire or experience apart from endurance? I mean, what if the truth is, is that endurance, being in the midst of uncomfortable situations for an indefinite period of time, what if that is actually the key that opens the door to the kind of character change that I would want to take place? We all kind of have this vision, it's loose, but we all kind of have this vision of who we wish we were. You know what, when we talk to people and we describe ourselves, we describe who we want to be, not who we really are, you know? So we have this image, but what if going through something that I don't want to go through, enduring something for an indefinite period of time that I don't want to, what if that's the key that unlocks the door to the big change in me? Let me go further. What if there is no way to have the best life ever in this life? No way to have the kind of redemptive impact that God intends us to have, meaning that we're going to be influences on other people for the highest possible good. We're going to be influences that, that cause them to contemplate returning to their creator. What if we can't ever reach our full redemptive potential in Christ apart from going through some of these circumstances that we're just, we're just hanging on. We're just, we just don't even know sometimes if I'm going to be able to take another day. How many of you ever said to yourself, I don't know if I can take any more of this. I think I'm at the edge. How many of you ever said that? But yet you probably did. You took a little more. You took more than you thought you could take. And when we come through those, one of two things happens. We either get very bitter and sarcastic and critical about life, negative. Or we come out on the other side something a little softer, a little more beautiful, a little more pliable, a little stronger, a little more Christ-like, a little more giving, a little more unselfish, a little more beautiful. It goes one way or the other, always does. So let's contemplate this subject of endurance by looking at one character in Scripture. We were with Abraham last week. We're going to go forward in time about 200 years from Abraham's call. We're going to meet uh, Abraham's great-grandson, and it's a guy named Joseph. In the book of Genesis, chapter 37, all through 50, the last 13 chapters are all about Joseph, and, and he's one of the most admirable people in all of scripture. This, this is my favorite story in all the Bible, these 13 chapters. Uh, no matter how many times I read it, God shows me new, new things that I didn't see before. And it's a powerful, beautiful story. But Joseph, Joseph gives us an example that life is about not just hills, not just, 
having things go the way we want, but it's about valleys. And frankly, what Joseph's life shows us, and I hope I'll be able to show you today, far from hating and dreading the valleys, the valleys are places where some of the most deep, worthwhile, constructive, lasting work is done in us, is done for us, And what we learn if we stay faithful in the valleys and what we gain if we stay faithful in the valleys will empower us to do things that we would have never had the ability to do. Things that we can't do now if we do our time and stay faithful in the valley. We come out with a whole different set of strengths, albeit mixed with a beautiful humility and compassion. Hills and valleys, that's that's God's formula for our walk in this life. Well, let's start in Genesis 37 to get a feel for this story and uh, I'm going to jump you through this please please follow with me but uh, I'll tell a lot of the story to save time and then have you read certain things but let's start in chapter 37 beginning in verse 1 it says but Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan this is the account of Jacob but it's really about Joseph Joseph his how how old 17 17 keep that in mind 17 year old son was taking care of the flocks with his brothers. Now, he was a youngster working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So he's tattling on his older brothers. Verse 3, now Israel, that's the other name for Jacob, uh, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son born to him in late in life. And he made a special tunic for him. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him, More than any of them, they what? They hated Joseph and were not able to speak kindly to him. And just pause for a minute. It just shows that we are such love-driven creatures that when we see we're not being loved the way we deserve to be. There's family favoritism. It's like a dagger in our hearts. And once we have that hurt, we're going to do one of two things. It's either going to make us tender and compassionate and seek God, or we're going to get very angry and want to do harm to somebody. In this case, they bolted toward anger and harm. Now, I'm going to pick up here and just kind of tell you what happens next because I I want to save time that I didn't save in the early message. So the next thing is Joseph, this young 17-year-old guy, he has this dream, and he senses this is not an ordinary dream. And so he tells his brother about this dream, and in the dream, he's like out in the field, and there's these, you know, stalks of wheat that are standing around, and they represent his brothers, and then all of a sudden, they all bow down, and Joseph is standing in the midst. And so he goes and tells his brothers this. He obviously doesn't have good people skills. They already hate him. (laughs) You know, he might be a nice kid, but he doesn't get it. These guys hate you because you're dad's favorite. And now he's going to tell them he has this dream that he's indicating is probably from God. And they're all bowing down to him. Well, they get extra mad. And it says they hated him even worse. Well, he doesn't stop there. God gives him another dream, and it's, it's the same sort of dream, only this time, not only are all the brothers bowing down to him, but mom and dad are bowing down too, and he goes and he tells the brothers and mom and dad, and even dad gets ticked off at this point. He might have been a favorite, but I'm not bowing down to you, son. So it does say one thing, though. It says dad kind of tucked this away. He, he kind of maybe sensed that even though he didn't like it, could be God, could be God. Well, the story goes on. Uh, Jacob sends Joseph out to spy on his other sons. They're out, you know, with the sheep in Dothan, and he wants to see if they're really doing their work well. And so he goes out to spy on them, but they see him coming. And when they see him coming, they say, this dreamer, I've had it with this guy. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Dad's never going to know what happened. Let's just take him and kill him. 
One of the brothers speaks up and says, no, you can't, we can't do this. We, we can't kill him. That was Reuben. And he says, but, but let's just throw him in a cistern. So there's a cistern where they're at. It didn't have water in it at the time. They throw him in there, and he's begging. Later on, we learn in Scripture, he's begging and crying and pleading for mercy to get out. He's terrified. He's a 17-year-old kid. He's heard his brothers talking about killing him, and then they throw him in a cistern. Well, time goes by, and all of a sudden, as fate would have it, they see a, a caravan of slave traders going by, Ishmaelite slave traders. And they say, hey, I got a great idea. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him to them. And we'll take his cloak and put some animal blood on it. And dad will think an animal killed him. And he'll never know the difference. And we're rid of this character anyway. And that's what they do. They sell this 17-year-old kid, their brother, sell him into slavery. And the scripture says the, the Israelite slave traders, they took him down into Egypt now, Manya, Egypt, the most sophisticated, powerful uh, nation of that day, but he didn't know the language, he didn't know the culture, he had lived a nomadic life in the wilderness, and, and so he's, he's surrounded by strangers, he can't understand what they're saying, and let me pick up, we'll pick up and read just a verse or two in chapter uh, 37, verse 36. It says, now in Egypt, the Midianites, another, other places they're called the Ishmaelites, now in Egypt, the Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. We'll pick the story back up in chapter 39 in just a bit. So now he is a slave in the household of this pretty high-rolling uh, military guy, Potiphar. Now the scripture says something that's mind-boggling. You're 17 years old. Your family pretty much has turned against you. You're a slave. You're terrified. But then we read these words in chapter 39. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, it's kind of a review, an official of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guard purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. Check out verse 2. The Lord was, what does it say? With Joseph. Pause for a minute. Imagine you face a certain circumstance in life you didn't want it, you didn't choose it, but it's going to completely turn your life upside down. It's going to take from you everything that you count desirable and joyful. It's going to strip you of some of the core relationships that are the most stabilizing in your life. It's going to take you and put you in an environment that you have never, ever faced. You're going to be disoriented. You're going to be scared. You're going to be struggling with all kinds of feelings. Are you going to believe, are you going to feel like, when you're in that valley, that's a bad valley, you've been enslaved by something that you don't want. Are you, follower of Christ, are you going to know that the Lord is with you? This is an incredible verse. It's one that we easily read over. Literally what it's saying is, when Joseph became a slave in the household of the Egyptian. God was with him in his slavery. He was right there experiencing with Joseph what Joseph was experiencing. Do you think, do you think that most of us, when we hit these kind of lows, when life gets uncontrollable, it's out of our control, and we end up kind of losing everything, that's what Joseph was experiencing. Do you and I'm talking to you who are followers of Christ, do you always have the sense at those times, I know God's with me. I know he's right here with me. Or 
to you maybe waver and say, I don't understand this, God. I haven't done anything to deserve this. I've been faithful to you. I'm on your side. Why can't you show yourself on my side? I, I, don't, I don't understand this. In fact, I'm, I'm right on the edge of being angry with you. I don't even know if you're, you're trustworthy. Which way would your heart drift? Because this story is put here to teach you and I that if we've returned to God by putting our faith in Christ and becoming our creator's followers, that he's with us He's with us in the worst valley. What's your worst valley? What valley might you be in today? What circumstance are you in? You don't know if it's ever going to get any better. You have no control over it directly. But you're, you're struggling. You, you're, you're not sensing God's with you. The Spirit of God is here wanting you to know, me to know forever. Whatever we face, God is just as with us in the valleys as he is in when we're on the mountaintops and the hills. There's no difference. He's with us. He's experiencing it with us. He's not detached. But it's a hard thing for us to feel usually in those times. So we read this strange thing. It says the Lord was with Joseph. It goes on to say he was successful and lived in the household of his Egyptian master. And his master observed the Lord was with him. And the Lord made everything he was doing successful. So Here's this Egyptian guy, as Joseph is struggling, no doubt, to learn the language. He's serving his master well. The master turns everything over to Joseph. And, and even this Egyptian who worshiped multiple foreign gods, he starts seeing this, this God that this kid's following. He's doing something. I can see it. But the story turns darker yet. It turns out that Potiphar's wife was not a faithful woman. And as time went on, she started to try to seduce Joseph. I mean, it's very graphic if you read it. She literally just hounded him about having sex with her. The Bible's a very honest book. And he kept refusing. He kept saying, I can't sin against God and against my master Potiphar like this. This is a terrible thing. Don't do this. And finally, she got so frustrated, she grabbed him physically. And to escape from her, he let his coat go in her hands, and he bolted out of the house. Well, now she was humiliated, and so she held on to the coat, and she waited till her husband came home, and she tells this story. That, that boy you brought in here that you turned everything over to, he tried to molest me. And Potiphar, what's he going to do? Who's he going to believe? He believes his wife, and listen to what happens next. Chapter 39 and verse 20. It says, Joseph's master took him and threw him into the what? What is the word? Can you find it? Genesis chapter 39, verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and threw him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So he was there in prison, verse 21. But the Lord was, what does it say? With Joseph. He ends up being given control of over all the prisoners, the warden recognizes there's something different about this young man but do you think do you think i would have felt you would have felt the lord's with me now it's gotten worse i've been framed by an evil woman she's won i've lost i'm now in prison my situation was bad enough i was a slave but now i'm living like a criminal and i'm in prison with no certainty that i'm ever going to get out again but the Lord was with him in prison. Let that sink in. God was present with Joseph. God in the prison. When you are in the prison, the circumstance that you can't bring yourself out of, that you can't change, and you're wondering if your life is ever going to feel good, feel good again. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? A loving God is with you in the prison. You're not alone. And there's no mistake 
about you being in the prison. The valleys, the valleys offer something. If we'll learn faithfulness in the valleys, we can acquire humility. And humility is not something that can be learned. It has to be acquired. Humility, my experience has been, has come the hard way by being humiliated, usually by my own stupidity in life. But whatever way it comes, it's acquired. It's not learned. It almost has to be kind of burnt into our character. But humility is one of the greatest virtues, character virtues we can have. From humility grow all Christ-like traits. And in the valleys in your life, you might be in one right now, if you stay faithful to God, he's with you, whether you feel it or not, he's with you. And if you stay faithful to him like Joseph did, he's going to do some things inside of you that you can hardly ever believe possible. You will not be the same. You stay faithful to God in the valley, you come out a person that has learned to be faithful You've endured, you've learned to be faithful no matter what, but you also acquire humility in the process. Listen to this New Testament passage that talks about this, this quality of enduring trials. In the book of James in the New Testament, it says, a man who endures trials is what? Blessed. Because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There, there's a blessing in going through these things. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus in Luke chapter 12, or excuse me, I, I forgot that one. Let me read them to you too. Hebrews 10, 36 says, you need what endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what he has promised. So sometimes we just need to be really patient and stay in that waiting room. Let's go on to, to quote it from uh, Jesus. He said, everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled, but, the, but he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. This is a really important principle. There's a guy named uh, John, Jonah Lehrer, and he talks about something he calls the power trap in uh, Wall Street Journal. And listen to this quote. He says, it's incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like what? Fools. They flirt inappropriately, tease in a hostile fashion, and become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage, noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, a brain area that's crucial for empathy and decision-making. Even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. We don't do well with power. I have watched this for uh, over almost 35 years now leading churches, and it's, it's amazing what a little bit of power can do. You've got to do your time in the valley, in my opinion, before God can safely give you any kind of power because power is something we don't navigate very well. Listen to what Proverbs 29 says. It says, the proud will be what? Humbled. It's, it's just a necessity. But the humble will be what? Honored, same thing Jesus said, will we'll be exalted. It's safe to honor and exalt somebody that's humble. It is not safe for somebody to be in a position of power if they have not acquired humility. And humility can be acquired by being faithful and enduring when we're in the valley. Let's get real personal. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but, you know, where yet, man? Where's your where's your season today? What where are you on the valley or, or in the valley or are you on the hill? Maybe it's a good season in your life. You're you're on top of things. Everything is going your way. Balls bouncing in your direction, or maybe you're in a valley, kind of like Joseph. You don't like what you're feeling. You don't like what you're experiencing. You don't understand it, but you're there. Are you getting bitter? 
Are you angry at God? Are you questioning God? Or do you know my God is with me? He told me he'll never leave me and forsake me. He's right here in me. He feels the agony of heart that I feel. And I'm going to be faithful to him in this valley. Whatever it is I know to be his will, I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to think about much else. I'm just going to think about being faithful. That's what Joseph did. He was faithful in Potiphar's house as a slave. He was faithful in the prison, watching over the prisoners. Now, his fortune turns. As time went on, the pharaoh gets angry at a couple of his officials. You know, one is a cupbearer. And you remember I talked about that. That's the guy that has the joyous job of tasting the king's drinks and making sure they're not poison. Uh, it's a good job as long as it lasts. It's, uh, <laughs> you live well for as long as you live. And the other one was the king's baker, another good, good position. So all of a sudden, something happens. We're not told what, and they have a falling out with Pharaoh. Pharaoh throws them in a slammer, and they meet Joseph. Well, all of a sudden, these two guys, they have dreams the same night, and they can sense these are not normal dreams. And so essentially, the, the cupbearer, he has this dream that, you know, three times there's this cup, and he's squeeze, squeezing grapes into it and giving it to Pharaoh, he doesn't know what, to, what in the world it means. And then the baker has this dream about, you know, three bowls on his head and birds coming to eat the bakery goods out, off the top of it. And so they're both confused. They know it means something. So they come to Joseph. And Joseph says, well, only God can interpret dreams. He says, however, he'll give you this interpretation if you want it. So he tells the cupbearer, he says, listen, man, good news for you. Three days, Pharaoh's going to restore you. And, you know, when you go back, please, please remember me. I haven't done anything to be here that's, that's worthy. I, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. I shouldn't be in this place. Please remember me when you get back to Pharaoh. The cupbearer, oh, sure, 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 because he's thinking this kid doesn't know what he's doing. And then the baker says, oh, well, what, what about me? Uh, you, you, you probably don't want to know. No, 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 I do want to know. What about me? Uh, three days you're going to have your head cut off. <laughs> well, it happens just like that. But when the cupbearer gets back, it reads in scripture, he forgot Joseph. And two more years go by. Now you're Joseph, what, what are you thinking now? I'm never gonna get out of here, never. This is probably gonna be the rest of my life. You're gonna get bitter, you're gonna get pathetic, you're gonna just stay faithful in any way that you can. Listen, occasionally, those are the choices we face in life. You might be in one right now. So Joseph goes right back to being faithful. And as things would have it, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. Really troubling dream. He knows it's not a natural dream. He sees these you know, seven fat, beautiful cows coming up, and they're grazing around. And then all of a sudden, these, these seven really you know, skinny, nasty-looking cows come up and eat the fat ones. Then he has another dream. He, says he sees these seven really fat-looking you know, shocks of wheat you know, standing up and you know, parading around. And then seven really ugly, burnt-looking ones come and eat them. So he's troubled. He can't get anybody in his kingdom to answer, you know, what the interpretation of this thing is. He knows it's not normal. So all of a sudden, the cupbearer, two years later, now that it might be advantageous to him, he remembers Joseph. He says, hey, hey, you know, not, not to dwell on this, Pharaoh, but there was a time when you and I had a little falling out. But don't think about that. But, but there was this guy I met, and he interpreted this dream, and he was right on target. Do you want to meet him? And Pharaoh's like, yeah, where's he at? Definitely I want to meet him. And so... He tells Pharaoh, Joseph says, you know, only God can interpret dreams, but God will give you the interpretation, and God intends to do something. He showed it to you twice, Pharaoh, to assure you this is going to happen. He says, here's what it means. You're going to have seven years of crop abundance. Man, the crops are just going to be so abundant. Piles of food is going to be available for seven straight years. 
But then it's going to be followed by seven years of extraordinary famine, the likes of which the land has never seen. He says, you know, hey, it's just me. You, you don't have to listen to me. I'm just this guy from jail. But if it were me, man, I, I would collect all the food from the seven years, you know, the abundant years. I put it in a storehouse so that you have something to feed the people when they need it for the lean seven years. He says, so thank you, Pharaoh, and I'll, I'll be on my way. And Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. Come back here. I don't have anybody in the kingdom like you. you, you you've got wisdom that we need. He says, would you come to work for me? And it's extraordinary. I'll read you the verse in chapter 41, verse 46. Here's what happens. Now Joseph was 30 years old. How old was he when he started? How many remember? 17. Do some math. 17 from 30 is how many years? Some of you are hesitant. <laughs> you weren't that good in math. It's okay. <laughs> 13 years. Slavery jail, hopeless, helpless, but God was with him in 13 rotten, lousy, unpleasant years that all he could do was endure and be faithful. Let's, let, let, let's take it from being a Bible story. This happened to a real man. Joseph was real. What if that's you? What if it's me? What if the next 13 years you're looking at Less than ideal circumstances for an indefinite period of time. Joseph never knew it was going to end this way. Will you be faithful? Will you endure? Will you trust that God's with you? Will you know that he's with you? And will you know that if you stay faithful, you can acquire some very valuable things. The main one being faithfulness and humility. Well, he exalts him and he puts him literally in charge of everything other than Pharaoh himself Joseph is in charge of all the land of Egypt he's he's the dog man he has got all the power possible that a man could have in that day but he sure didn't look like a good candidate I, I mean you know he, he may have felt a little unsure I mean he's all he's done is you know kind of chase some sheep when he was a kid and then he was a slave for a while and then he was in jail the rest of the time and and maybe he didn't have a lot of confidence Maybe there was not much reason for confidence. How many of you, be honest, have you ever struggled with, you just don't have much confidence, you, there's things you'd like to do, but you just, you're just not sure you can? Can I see your hands? Be encouraged by this. L listen to this quote. Thomas Camoro from Music. He said, low enough confidence can help you in the following three ways. Lower self-confidence makes you pay attention to negative feedback and be self-critical. That's good. Lower self-confidence can motivate you to work harder and prepare more. That's good. Lower self-confidence reduces the chances of coming across as an arrogant or as arrogant or being deluded. That's really good. Let me add another one. Lower self-confidence makes us very dependent on Christ and his power and his faithfulness and his ability. And that's really, really good. And I think Joseph probably had all that mix. Maybe that's God's whisper to you this morning that what you thought was a, a liability is really an asset, your lack of confidence. Well, the story gets much more interesting. Sure enough, the seven years of plenty occur. Joseph stores all the grain and then the famine starts. And people are pouring into Egypt, you know, to try to, to get food just to survive. And the all of a sudden, it gets real bad back at Jacob's house where the brothers and dad are still at. And Jacob says to them, it's, it's kind of funny. I want to read it to you. The language is so funny. In chapter 42, 
verse 1. It says, when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you looking at each other? <laughs> Love it. He said to them, look, I hear there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy grain for us so that we may live and not die. He's, he's looking at him. He's saying, what are you morons doing? Get down to Egypt. Get us some food. So, sure enough, they go down to Egypt. Now, who's in charge of all the food in Egypt? Joseph. Joseph is not a kid anymore. He's not some 17-year-old whippersnapper. By the time they get there, he was instituted into Pharaoh's you know, force at age 30, but it's seven years later. He's a 37-year-old man, and he's totally Egyptian, speaks the language fluently, looks the look, you know, he's all smoothed up and smelling good. He's not looking like his nomadic brothers. <laughs> and the nomadic brothers go down into Egypt, and they have to go to Joseph and ask for food. And they don't know who he is. It's quite a scene. Look at, if you would, at chapter 42, verse 8. It says, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered, what did he remember? What does it say? The dreams he had dreamed about them. And then he says to them, he says, you're a bunch of spies. <laughs> he, he doesn't give them an easy way initially. So he's going to put them through a little bit of tension before reconciliation can be possible. He wants to, I think, see that these guys have had some degree of change of heart. So the whole thing gets more and more interesting as it goes on. But let's back up for us a little bit. When you're in the valley, when I'm in the valley, we have an opportunity by God to learn faithfulness and acquire humility. These are tremendous traits that will empower us, enable us when we are on the hills, on the mountains, to do wonderful things with a sacrificial, uh, unselfish heart. Things that we would not have the ability or even the notion to do at other points in our life until those traits come. So when we're on the mountains, we need to learn, do this. We need to express wisdom and show compassion. When you get in a position of power and authority, when you, when you hit the good times, if you've let the, the valley times do the work that God wants them to do in us, we are different people. We're never the same. If we come out of the valleys having been faithful to God, we're broken people. We're compassionate people. We're tenderhearted. We know what it feels like to be hopeless. We know what it feels like to be hated. We know what it feels like to be pushed and shoved and taken advantage of and unloved. And if we allow God to work in us during those times, we carry that with a soft heart for, toward others. Well, listen to this verse from the New Testament book of James. It says in James 3.13, it says, are any of you wise in understanding? You are to prove it by your good life. When you get on the mountain, you've got, you got to show you've got some wisdom and understanding by your good life, by your good deeds performed with what? Humility and wisdom. The places on the mountaintops, they are not to control others. They are to serve others. Jesus said he that will be great among you must be the servant of all. But you won't serve others when you get in authority unless you've been broken sufficiently by the work that God does in the valleys, by enduring and being faithful to him in the valleys. As the NYPD uh, hostage negotiator, he, um, he was the head negotiator for 33 years. His name is Jack Cambria. And he says something interesting. He said, the very good negotiators think, uh, excuse me, the very good negotiators, I think, are the ones with life stories. Particularly, he would add life stories of pain that have produced what? compassion for others 
Cambria claims good negotiators must experience the emotion of love at one point in their life to know what it means to have been hurt in love at one point in their life, to know success, and perhaps most important, to know what it means to know what? Failure. Valley. Valley life. Valley life. The valley is not your enemy. God's with you in the valley. God's doing things in the valley in you and in me that cannot be done in any other way. God will transform you and I in the valley and give us the traits necessary so that when we are on the hills and the mountaintops, man, we've got broken hearts, compassionate hearts, humble hearts, and we can be a blessing to multitudes. Joseph ends up saving probably hundreds of thousands of people because he's a different guy. It's interesting as this passage goes on and as the story goes on, uh, the brothers, in fact, I, I will let you read this one. In chapter 42, look at verse 21. So the brothers, you know, they're, they're all bothered about Joseph, you know, asking them questions about uh, a younger brother and so forth. And they said to one another, it says, surely we're being punished because of our brother, because we saw how distressed he was when he cried to us for mercy. I, I said that earlier. He begged, he cried for mercy, but we refused to listen. This is why this distress has come on us. Verse, look at verse 23. It says, Now they did not know that Joseph could understand them, for he was speaking to them through a what? An interpreter. And then look at verse 24. So these brothers, these brothers are saying, We're just getting what we deserve. We should have never did this to our brother. And Joseph understands it, but they don't know that Joseph understands. But look what he does in verse 24. He turned away from them and did what? wept he wept this is one of six times in the next couple chapters where it says joseph wept every time he gets around these brothers and he sees their pathetic unresolved guilt and the confusion that they live in he does not feel anger for them he does feel pity and still loves them but wants to figure out is there some way we can actually ever have normal relationship again and he keeps weeping he, he's a different guy he he, he could have really took it to him you know, vengeance was in his hands, but he didn't take it. That's what happens when you're faithful in the valley and you acquire the humility can only usually be acquired in those ways. Well, the story goes on. The brothers come to him yet again. He sends them back home. They have to come back for more food. And finally, he can't stand it anymore. He reveals himself to them. And in chapter 45, I will just share a couple of verses with you. Uh, look at chapter 45 verse 1 it says Joseph was no longer able to control himself before all his attendants so he cried out make everyone go out of my presence no one remained with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers he here it is again he wept loudly the Egyptians heard it and Pharaoh's household heard it or heard about it Joseph said to his brothers I'm Joseph is my father still alive his brothers could not answer him because they were dumbfounded before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. He doesn't make it real easy. Now, he, now listen to what he says. Now do not be upset and angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For these past two years, there's been famine in the land. In five more years, there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it is not you who sent me here, but who? God. That's extraordinary, man. This is a guy who had no Bible. 
This is a guy who didn't have the full revelation of God that we had. This is a guy who had no revelation of God in Christ. And he had this kind of confidence in God. That's where, by the way, we get that verse that I read you earlier, Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. That's what all things working together for good looks like. 13 years in the valley with no certainty it's ever going to get better. But boy, if you stay faithful to God, that does something to you and puts you in a place where you can be an amazing human being, a beautiful human being, a human being that blesses every other life that it touches. If you want that, you've got to have endurance in the valley. Now, I want to share a little phrase with you to kind of close, prepare to close this out. Uh, Actually, I want to, right there. Here's what I want you to walk away with. God is with us in the valleys. That's where it's hardest to believe and feel. He's with us in the valleys as well as the hills. Now we can go back to that quote. A guy named Ronald Rollheiser, I've shared this with you before. He says, crisis of every kind will find us. Life is hills and valleys. But these crises enter our lives not just as challenges to us to retain our balance and stability, but as invitations to do what? Stretch, stretch our hearts and minds. Every crisis includes within itself an invitation for us to move from being good people to becoming what kind of people? Joseph is a great, great man, had a great life. You are destined for greatness. But enduring in the valley when life is less than ideal for an indefinite period of time, it usually is the key to becoming great and beautiful and godly and righteous and unselfish and giving people we're going to close a little different we're going to close with bringing that song back again hills and valleys like you stay seated for that part and then uh ilana's going to have you stand up at a point in that song and sing none then i will come back and close you in prayer so please stay seated through this Among the shadows, you wiped my tears away. I felt the pain of heartbreak, and I've seen the brighter days. And I prayed prayers to heaven from my lowest place. I have held your blessings, God, you give and take away. No matter what I have, your grace is enough. No matter where I am, I'm standing in your love. On the mountains, I will bound my life to the one who set me there. In the valley, I will lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain, I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through the valley, I know I am not alone. You're the God of the hills and valleys, hills and valleys, God of the hills and valleys, and I am not alone. Watch my dreams are broken, in you our hope is there. I know no matter what I'm saving, 
inside your hands in the darkness i will live my life to the one who set me there in the valley i will live my life to the one who sees me there when i'm standing on the mountain i didn't get there on my own when i'm walking On the mountains I will bound my life In the valley I will lift my eyes oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Come on church, let's stand and let's sing There is none like you there is none like you, none like you, the faithful one, Jesus. There is none like you, none like you, the faithful one, Jesus. Again, there is none like you. None like you, the faithful one, Jesus. There is none like you, none like you, the faithful one, Jesus. Everlasting. Thank you. 
like you. Come on. The faithful one, Jesus. (laughs) Will you guys give me a gift? Please, please, please sing like that every Sunday. I, I mean, it just wrecks me. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, let's pray. Father, you know us. You know which of us today are in the valleys, and maybe we're confused and scared and angry and lots of other things. Help us to know that you are right there with us, feeling what we feel. And that you never leave, never forsake those that are yours. Some of us, we're in a good spot. We've got a lot of freedom. We've got a lot of things we are capable of doing. May you expand our vision and our courage and our sacrificial love that we do those things with humility and compassion and wisdom for your honor and for the blessing of so many others. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.